You're listening to Radio Maria, Christian Boys in your home. We're now present in the show. Jesus the Burma's Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Uh, first of all, this is, as you know, if you've listened before, a live call-in radio show. Uh, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, of course, for the Blessed Virgin Mary. So again, 866-333-6279. And um, I'm always happy to get calls. Some shows lend themselves to calls better than others. Uh, for instance, if I have a guest, I may not want to interrupt them, or um, sometimes the story I'm telling kind of has a continuity to it. Today is not one of those shows. Today is a show that I think if you have some questions anywhere along the line of what I'm talking about and uh, wish to call in for clarification or explanation or complaint or whatever, uh, I think it would probably work out pretty well to be interrupted at any Point during the show, so I certainly invite you to do so. And again, as uh, is usually the case, we will have a short musical break about halfway through, which is also a good time to call. Um, last week, I talked about Saint Ignatius's um, spiritual exercises, and in particular, the first principle and foundation, uh, basically the meaning of life, or the fundamental, you know, first page of the owner's manual to life. And so I thought today that I would continue along the same lines and continue with St. Ignatius's spiritual counsels from his spiritual exercises. And um, as I said last week, it was focused on the first principle and foundation. And this week I will focus on his Rules for the Discernment of Spirits, uh, which is actually also just rules, rules for the spiritual life, so to speak. Um, before I do that, and I will launch straight into that, uh, I got a very interesting comment from last week's show, so I just want to clarify something a little bit. Uh, last week I was reading from the writings of Father John Harden, a Jesuit priest who recently passed away, who I think the world of. And I was reading his discussion of the first principle and foundation, and I did not interrupt myself when he said something that is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable viewpoint, but not one with which I entirely agree. Uh, I didn't think it was incumbent on me to disagree with him, who has such stature and such well-deserved respect as a theologian, but one of the comments I received over the internet was basically a listener who was surprised that I agreed with him, and so I felt a little guilty at not pointing it out. So I will point it out now. Let me um, first say, in case you didn't listen to last week's show, let me just briefly repeat St. Ignatius's first principle and foundation so that you have some background of what I'm talking about. Man is created to praise, reverence, and serve God our Lord, and by this means to save his soul. All the other things on the face of the earth 
are created for man so that they may help him in pursuing that end for which he is created. From this it follows that man is to use them to the extent they help him towards that end, and should rid himself of them to the extent that they hinder him from that end. For this it is necessary to make ourselves indifferent to all created things in so much as is allowed to our free will choice and is not prohibited, so that, for our part, we should not prefer health over sickness, riches over poverty, honor over dishonor, a long life over a short life, and so on, in all the rest, we should desire and choose only that which is most conducive for us towards the end for which we were created. So that's St. Ignatius's first principle and foundation. The um, comment that I read from Father John Harden that uh, I was called to account for uh, was a in the context of a discussion of the first principle and foundation, Father Hardin said, we are made out of God, excuse me, we are made by God out of nothing. He used nothing and he parted with nothing when he created us. He gained nothing by bringing us into existence and gains nothing by our obedience to his free will. Now, the part of that which is a little bit problematical is whether he gains anything from our obedience to his will. And in fact, whether he gains anything by having brought us into existence. And these human terms are rather uh, coarse and clumsy when applied to God. And there's a fundamental sense in which, of course, God doesn't need anything. Um, but there's another dimension to the understanding of God's existence, which is referred to as impassibility, which has to do with whether God experiences emotion or not. And... Um, my understanding is that at various points in time, saints and well-regarded Catholic theologians have, on the one hand, some of them have asserted that God does not experience emotion, and others have asserted that he does experience emotion, and certainly Jesus in his human nature, which he still has, experiences emotion, and um, so that would imply that we have the capability of pleasing God. And it seems to me that um, all of the joy is taken away from trying to please God if, in fact, we don't somehow make him happy by pleasing him. So uh, to the extent that that line of Father John Harden's suggests that God has no emotional response to our love or to our attempts to please him. I do separate myself from from his statement. So that is the little caveat about last week's show. On to this week's show. Now, now um, as I said, I'm going to be talking about St. Ignatius's rules for the discernment of spirits. Everything I'm talking about, by the way, in this week's show and last week's show is drawn from his spiritual exercises which is uh, long since out of copyright and freely available in any number of translations, uh, including plenty of free ones on the Internet. So if you're interested, by all means, it would be worth um, getting a copy and looking at it. However, I will, again, another caveat, there are exercises, so I am treating them as spiritual wisdom to be read and understood right now, uh, that is a small 
very small part of them. The vast, you know, the the vast bulk of the exercises are exercises to be practiced in the form of meditations, and that reading the book isn't equivalent to doing so. Anyway, back to the rules for the discernment of spirits. Now, the basic premise of the rules for discernment of spirits is that our minds are essentially the battleground on which the battle between God and the enemy of salvation takes place for our souls. What goes on in our mind is the field of battle. And present in our mind, in some sense, are inspirations and guidance, so to speak, that come from the good spirits. One can think of it as coming from God. One can think of it as coming from our guardian angel. But in any case, coming from the spirits who are in alignment with God and also present in our thoughts and inspirations are thoughts and ideas and statements that come from bad spirits that are um, after our the loss of our souls rather than the salvation of our souls. And so there is this continual, I don't want to say cacophony, but our thoughts are not entirely our own. Many of our thoughts are our own. We are, in some sense, the principal origin of our thoughts. But nonetheless, there are also inspirations and, in some sense, um, voices talking in our head that come from these two sources. Now, that might sound pretty pretty way out there. I remember when I was a young child, I used to read Archie comics. And one of the things that I like looking back on it about reading Archie comics is that one of the when the character was weighing different things in his mind, you'd see a little angel with a halo on one shoulder whispering to him to do one thing, and a little devil with a pitchfork in his hands perched on his other shoulder, whispering in his other ear to do something else. It's easy to imagine what those good inspirations and bad inspirations would have been. And um, although that was in the context of a comic book, you know, for better or for worse, that's actually the the texture of our lives, so to speak. Um, if one just thinks about going through one's day, uh, you know, there often the thought pops into one's mind, now, 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 don't get angry, be patient, this will be over in a moment. Or the thought pops into one's mind, how dare he do that, I'm not going to let him get away with that, and so forth. And it doesn't take too much examination to conclude which kind of thoughts are coming from the good guys and which kind of thoughts are coming from the bad guys. So that's that's kind of the backdrop to the rules for the discernment of spirits. So the next step that St. Ignatius introduces, and I will, after I've gone through this little introduction of my own, I will read the text of what he writes and, and talk about it from the text. But the next step is, of course, to become consciously aware of these uh, voices in our head, so to speak, and when one of these thoughts does pop into our head, to determine, is that coming from the good guys or is that coming from the bad guys? Is that something that I should be listening to or is that something that I should not be listening to or perhaps even do the opposite of because it's coming from the bad 
guys. So the purpose of this discernment of spirits is to discern which side a thought is coming from, and then on the basis of that discernment, determine how to respond to that thought. So with that uh, background, let me begin reading from St. Ignatius's uh, Rules for the Discernment of Spirits. Um, rules. Rules for perceiving and knowing in some manner the different movements which are caused in the soul, the good in order to receive them, and the bad in order to reject them. That's basically the purpose, to uh, perceive which... Um, the so, you know perceive the different movements in the soul and which side they're coming from and if they're coming from the good side so that we may receive them and if they're coming from the bad side so that we may reject them now then saint ignatius goes on to point out that um of course the the bad thoughts are coming from the enemy of our salvation now uh, the enemy of our salvation is no fool. He's very, very smart. He's unfortunately far smarter than we are. And just like a general in a war's first tactic or you know first thing that he does is examine his enemy's defenses and decide where the weak points are and and what the vulnerabilities are so that the general will attack the vulnerabilities rather than attacking the strong points of the other party's defenses. So the enemy of our salvation first looks at us and decides which of two types of people we are, which of two categories we fall into. One category is, as St. Ignatius says, the type of person who goes from sin to sin. And the other category of person is people who are intent on cleansing their sins and rising from good to better in the service of God our Lord. So the enemy's first first um, tactic, so to speak, is to determine which of these two categories we fall into. Now, if we fall into the first category, that is, if we are a person whose tendency is to go from sin to sin, the enemy's uh, strategy is to propose to them apparent pleasures making them imagine sensual delights and the pleasures and pleasures in order to hold them more and make them grow in their vices and sins. Okay, so if one is a, the type of person who tends to go from sin to sin, the enemy's strategy is to uh, fill our minds with the imagination of sensual delights and pleasures in order to increase his grip on us and encourage us in growing more and more in our vices and sins. Um, and also, by the way, to tell us, oh, God doesn't really mind. Oh, that's not really a sin. Oh, no, you'll really be doing the other person a favor by seducing them, whatever. But to present these pleasures and um, delights to us in a kind of um, uh, a sugar-coated guise that both is very appealing to our sensual nature and also very dismissive of the wrong of it or the sinfulness of it. So if that is the enemy spirit's uh, approach towards people whose tendency is to go from sin to sin, now uh, the good spirit's approach to people who tend to go from sin to sin is to use exactly the opposite method, pricking 
their consciences through the process of reason. In other words, make, making them aware of a guilty conscience, giving them a guilty conscience, making them uh, aware of the evil and the wrong and the displeasingness of God that is associated with indulging that vice or that um, sinful pleasure. Now, however, in the case of a person who's trying to um, increase in virtue, the tactics of the two parties are exactly the opposite. For somebody who is trying to cleanse their sins and rise from good to better in the service of God our Lord, um, the methods used by the two spirits are exactly the opposite. For these people, it is the way of the evil spirit to bite, sadden, and put obstacles, disquiet with false reasons, the person who's trying to grow in virtue, and it is proper to the good spirit to give courage and strength, consolations, tears, inspirations, uh, inner peace, and putting away of all obstacles so that one may go on in well-doing. In other words, if somebody is striving to increase in virtue, then the evil spirit will try to make them miserable and discouraged and you'll never succeed and God doesn't care anyway and who are you feeling, who are you fooling, you'll just fail and um, also to try to actually make them feel guilty about everything they're doing even if it isn't sinful so that they will give up on trying to please God whereas it is characteristic with the good spirit with these people to give them consolation, to give them an inner peace to give them encouragement. So you see, I'm, I'm not doing justice to this, for which I apologize, but, but I hope that I've at least uh, painted with a broad brush the basic principle here. So the first step is just bring this down to earth and what one should do is first of all determine which of the two types of people you fall into. Now, if you're listening to Radio Maria, if you're listening to the show, then the odds are that you're a person who is somewhat oriented towards trying to please God more and more, which means that one should be particularly aware of the tactics of the evil one in that type of person, which means if you feel discouragement about your um, ability to please God, if you feel that no matter what you do, it can't possibly be enough, if you feel um, scruples in the sense that things that are not at all sins are, if you feel them as terrible sins or as sins at all, um, perhaps that's a matter of legitimate pleasures. In other words, there are probably people out there who feel guilty if they frankly, if they eat dessert or something, or if they take a walk on a nice day because they feel they're being overly self-indulgent or something. Well, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, God is not opposed to innocent pleasures. He's not opposed to enjoying the good things in this life in the right context and in the right moderation. However, the enemy is likely to try to make you feel guilty about that so that your life dries up and, and you don't have the joy that God wants to give you, and so forth. So it's very useful to be aware of these two types of people, to put yourself 
to discern which category you fall into and then to be alert to the types of temptations that the bad spirits might be introducing into your mind um, in order to sway you from the right path. Okay, I hope that worked. I hope that was clear. If not, call in. If so, call in if you wish. 866-333-6279. Now, the um, next rule that St. Ignatius goes on to is the principle of spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation. Um, I will define those terms, but again, it's very useful to be consciously aware of whether one is in a state of spiritual consolation or spiritual desolation. Because if one is in a state of spiritual consolation, that is a telltale sign that one is under the dominant influence of the good spirits. And if one is in a state of spiritual desolation, that's a telltale sign that one is under the influence of the evil spirits, of the negative spirits. If uh, if one is uh, trying to make a serious decision, um, one can trust one's judgment and feel that one is the light that one is being given about making that decision is a light to be followed if one is in a state of spiritual consolation. Because if one's in a state of spiritual consolation, that's a sign, as I said, that one's uh, mind is being most heavily influenced by their guardian angel or by the good spirits. If one's in a state of spiritual desolation, the last thing you should do is make a serious decision or, God forbid, go back on a previous serious decision because your thinking is being scrambled by the bad guys. So having said that, let me go into the uh, description of what constitutes spiritual consolation. Back to the words of St. Ignatius. I call it consolation when some interior movement in the soul is caused through which the soul comes to be inflamed with love of its creator and lord and when it can in consequence love no created thing on the face of earth in itself but only in the creator of them all also when it sheds tears that move it to love of its lord whether out of sorrow for one's sin or for the passion of christ our lord or because of other things directly connected with his service and praise. Finally, I call consolation every increase of hope, faith, and charity, and all interior joy which calls and attracts to heavenly things and to the salvation of one's soul, quieting it and giving it peace in its Creator and Lord. Um, so, how can one tell if one's in a state of spiritual consolation? Well, if one feels a natural, intrinsic love and devotion to Jesus, that's a pretty good sign. If one feels attracted to prayer and warm and gushy inside uh, from at the prospect of saying a rosary or saying a Hail Mary or thinking about Jesus, um, if one feels the uh, interior peace and confidence that comes from, frankly, you know, the presence of the Lord in the soul, um, if one is uh, drawn to prayer, in other words, thinks of prayer as a very attractive thing to be doing, you know, is eager to go to Mass, is, is eager to do spiritual reading, so forth, those are all good signs that one is in a state of spiritual consolation, and probably one's 
judgment and um, uh, you know thinking process about serious decisions will be uh, illumined with the right light, with the light that comes from God. Uh, spiritual desolation is kind of the opposite. So back to the words of St. Ignatius uh, about spiritual desolation. Quote, I call desolation all of the contrary of the previous, such as darkness of soul, disturbance of the soul, movement to things low and earthly, the unquiet of different agitations and temptations, moving to want of confidence, hopelessness, lovelessness, when one finds oneself entirely lazy, tepid, sad, as if separated from one's Creator and Lord. Because, as consolation is contrary to desolation, in the same way the thoughts which come from consolation are contrary to the thoughts which come from desolation. Let me just add some things to St. Ignatius's characterization of the state of spiritual desolation. Um, just on a personal note, uh, some of you may know that at one point in my life, before my conversion, I was a professor at Harvard Business School. I was a yuppie. I had a lot of status. I had a lot of income. Um, I was extremely worldly. I was living a life without God. When I'm in a state of spiritual desolation, pretty much the first telltale sign is I start thinking, oh, why did I ever give that all up? Oh, why didn't I stay on that path? That's a pretty good sign of desolation. If one has, is, if one has converted from a sinful life or from a worldly life to a fairly religious life or God-oriented life, then if you start thinking, oh, why was I such a fool? I should have stayed in the other life. You can be pretty sure that you're in a state of spiritual desolation and it's the enemy spirits that are talking in your head. Uh, similarly, if you envy, you know, if you envy... Um, you know, I don't want to get personal, but, you know, if, if you envy the people who are in the newspaper because of their promiscuousness, because of their fame, because of their money, um, if you say to yourself, oh, why couldn't I be Ted Turner? Or, you know, why couldn't I be, um, oh, I don't even remember their names, um, you know, this rock star or that rock star or this billionaire or that hedge fund manager, you know, or that. Uh, powerful politician or whatever. That's a pretty good sign. If you if you envy sinners for the fruits of their sin, um, if you envy what used to be called worldlings, people who just live for the rewards of this world, um, if you envy them for those rewards, that's a pretty good sign. You're in spiritual desolation. Um, if you feel uh, tremendous, you know, if you feel a lot of anger, if you feel a lot of resentment, if you feel a lot of envy, um, you know, if you, all of those things are signs that one is in a state of spiritual desolation, which basically is just a fancy way of saying, don't listen to the voices in your head. The voices in your head are coming from the bad guys who are, you know, maintaining a barrage of whispering, of uh, sometimes, God forbid, even shouting in your head, trying to lead you astray. Um, by the way, um, I'll make a little digression, which is um, a number, probably a few months ago, I did a couple of shows on the exorcism of Annalise Michel. And in talking through her state of possession and in talking through the um, what was brought to the surface by the exorcists, 
this also became very clear that basically our minds are the battleground and there are these voices talking, so to speak, to us. And uh, some of them are coming from the good guys and some of them are coming from the bad guys. So um, I'll just kind of try to wrap up this uh, desolation, consolation teaching and then we'll go to the uh, musical break. I'm a couple of minutes behind already, but it'll be another couple of minutes. And again, by the way, if you wish to call in during the break, I'm all ears, so to speak. The number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Anyway, so the purpose of this identification of whether one's in a state of spiritual consolation or spiritual desolation is the following rule, which is basically, in the time of desolation, never make a change, but be firm and and constant in the resolutions and determination in which one was the day preceding such desolation, or in the determination and resolutions which you were in during your preceding consolation. Because in consolation, it is the good spirit who is guiding and counseling us, and in desolation, it is the bad spirit which is guiding and counseling us. So, of course, in desolation, we will not take a course which decides rightly about these things. This is really the the bottom line. And similarly, um, as though uh, as in desolation we should not change our first resolutions, um, it is it is a, well. I, I won't go into that right now. I'll just skip to the next thing. So first of all, in desolation, never make a change. Never go back on what you decided when you were in consolation, because in desolation, if you um, follow the spirit that's guiding and counseling you, you'll be following the evil spirit. Um, However, in desolation, it is extremely useful to remind oneself that it won't last forever and that at some point in the future, the um, spiritual desolation will end and spiritual consolation will return. In spiritual desolation, there are basically two strategies to follow. One strategy, which in some sense is the superior strategy if you're able to do it, is what St. Ignatius referred to as agira contra, act against, which is since in spiritual desolation the last thing you want to do is, for instance, pray a rosary. Pray a rosary precisely because it's the last thing you want to do. In other words, act against the spirit that's guiding you. Act against the evil spirit. In desolation, the last thing you want to do is to do some spiritual reading, so do more spiritual reading. In desolation, the last thing you want to do is be nice and friendly to somebody, so be extra nice and friendly to them. In other words, act directly contrary to the spirit that's guiding you, because that spirit that's guiding you is the enemy. So, of course, acting exactly contrary is the best possible thing to do. Another advantage of this is that if you are acting contrary to that spirit precisely because that spirit is active in you, you're doing the last thing that spirit wants, so he'll turn tail and flee, essentially, because he's shooting himself in the foot. He's bringing about exactly the opposite of what he wants to bring about. Rather than getting you to stop praying, he is um, inadvertently getting you to double your prayers. So, of course, he's going to stop doing it because it is counterproductive for him. However, 
and this is from my own personal experience, sometimes you can't bring yourself to do it. I, I know that if you're religious, if you're a good monk, because uh, I've had this argument with a friend of mine who's a very good monk, and he doesn't understand. He thinks you always should be able to do it. Maybe that's true. I know I'm not able to do it. The best I can do when I'm in serious spiritual desolation is hunker down. <laughs> hunker down, literally. It's just like I, mean, I live in Florida. Sometimes there are hurricanes. You know, what you do is you put up the hurricane shutters and you go into the basement or whatever. We don't actually have basements, but you know what I mean. You go into a room in the center of the house and you just wait it out. You hunker down because you know that the storm will pass and you stay out of trouble until it does. And that's not a bad strategy either, because basically, if you avoid sinning, and if you avoid doing anything stupid when you're in a state of desolation, in a sense, you've already won the game. Because if you do wait it out without sinning or doing anything stupid or going back on your good resolutions or whatever, if you simply wait it out, the storm will pass and you'll be back in constellation. So you will also have been victorious. So... Um, with that, I, we've come to the halfway point in the show, I guess. So I will uh, take a break, and uh, after our short musical break, I'll come back and continue with St. Ignatius's Rules for the Discernment of Spirits. And again, if you wish to call during the break, the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And with that, I'll be back in a few moments. Hi, welcome back. Uh, we've been spending today's show uh, talking about the rules for discernment of spirits by from St. Ignatius, from his spiritual exercises, and I will simply continue with where we left off before the break since there haven't been any calls yet. Again, if you wish to call, the number is 866-333-6279. Um, anyway, so having given my kind of explanation, let me go back to the words of St. Ignatius. Um, he says rather more precisely some of the things that I kind of um, uh, said in a more uh, kind of personal way. Uh, okay, so here are some of rules for him, rules from him. Although in desolation we ought not to change our prior resolutions, it is very helpful to orient ourselves against that desolation by insisting on an increase in prayer, an increase in meditation, an increase in examination of conscience, and uh, giving ourselves more scope in some suitable way of doing penance. Uh, this is that Ajira Contra that I was talking about, acting against it. If one is able to, it is very useful in a state of desolation to, although you don't change any prior resolutions, to uh, basically increase our pious practices, increase our practices that are acts of obedience and service and worship of God. Uh, he says, uh, again in his words, it is very helpful to orient ourselves against that desolation by insisting on increased prayer, increased meditation, increased examination of conscience, and increased penance. The next rule, let he who is in desolation consider how the Lord has left him in trial in his natural powers, 
in order to resist the different agitations and temptations of the enemy, since he can, with divine help which always remains to him, although he may not be able to perceive it, because the Lord has taken from him his great fervor, great love, and intense grace, leaving him, however, sufficient grace for eternal salvation. I'll talk more about this one in a rule which follows um, in the rule after the next one. So going on to the next rule. Let he who is in desolation labor to be patient, which is contrary to the vexations which come to him, and let him be aware that he will soon be consoled, employing against the desolation the devices as said previously. And this is what I discussed, that when you're in desolation, the surest thing to do is simply to be patient and wait it out, which is contrary to the temptations which come to you, which make you feel like there's an urgency to doing something about it, you know, which may actually be even to sin, you know, like this, like, oh, what I have to do now is watch something on TV I shouldn't be watching, you know, go out and have, a, you know, I don't want to give examples of particular vices, but engage in some vice, like, like, because what one might be thinking in that desolation is, oh, I feel so miserable, um, my only recourse, the only way I'll get out of this feeling is to do something that I probably shouldn't really be doing, but I have no choice because this is such hopeless despair that I'm in. And uh, in that circumstance, uh, the best weapon is patience and simply not doing something that one knows one should not do, which is why I'm such a strong proponent of hunkering down and waiting for the storm to pass. Now, uh, going forward to the next rule, which is also kind of going back to the rule that I kind of skipped because they overlap a bit, which is when one is in desolation, the question arises, why are you in desolation? Because your first inclination is not to know that you're in desolation. The first uh, inclination is simply, oh my God, you know, this is hopeless. You know, I, I, I can't stand this discouragement. I can't stand this despair. I have nothing to look forward to in life. I blew it. Whatever that particular discouragement is that one's subject to. Um, it feels like you've come to the end of the road. It feels like God's not there. So the next step is one has to turn around and say, okay, what's going on? Why am I in this state of desolation? The temptation may be, I'm in this state of desolation because God has rejected me, I've blown it, and my future with God is hopeless. And again, speaking personally, I spent a long time uh, discerning whether or not I had a religious vocation. And whenever I was in a state of desolation, the voice of the enemy that came to me would essentially be saying, you're in this desolation because you blew it. God wanted you to become, you know, whatever it is. God wanted you to become a priest. God's plan for you was to become a priest. You didn't become a priest, so you have no role with God. You have no relationship to God. God has dropped you. You know, he has no plan for you anymore. You're left to your own devices. Sometimes it was the priesthood. Sometimes it was religious life. Sometimes there was something else. But, you know, there was these forks in the road that one takes. And in desolation, one of the things that the enemy might be saying is, you're in this state of desolation 
because you took the wrong fork in the road, because you married this person when you shouldn't have married them, or because you didn't marry this person when you should have married them or whatever, and therefore God has abandoned you. That's a terrible thing to be thinking, and we can actually know for sure that's, ne that's ne never the case, because God doesn't work that way. However, that does leave one with the situation of, okay, why am I in this state of desolation? Why is God doing this to me? Why is God letting this happen to me? There are a number of very good reasons why God might leave you in that state of desolation for a while. One is simply as a trial to exercise your natural faculties that can be used to resist the temptations of the enemy, because we never grow in strength if we don't ever have resistance. In other words, if we're never tempted, we don't grow in our ability to resist temptation. Um, and we don't grow in our faith. I mean, we should in this desolation uh, be confident that with divine help, which always remains whether we can perceive it or not, we will be able to overcome this. So it's an opportunity to grow in faith. Um, the Lord wants to know that we love him for himself and not for his gifts, for the consolation he gives. So it's an opportunity for us to show God our love when, in some sense, he isn't stacking the deck by making us feel his love and feel his lovableness. So it requires more of an act of will, more of a, more of a kind of uh, determination on our part. So it's a way of growing in love of God. Now, it is true that we might be in desolation because we have sinned or because we have grown tepid or neglectful in our prayer life. So it's not a bad idea to uh, basically examine one's conscience a little bit and see if you have slagged off, or whatever the word is, if you've kind of um, turned away from what you had intended to be doing in terms of prayer or attending Mass or, or not sinning or whatever it may be, um, one can always use the sacrament of confession to either confess whatever sin one... Because one of the possibilities is that one's in desolation because one's in a state of sin and one's relationship with God has been um, lessened by that. That's what the sacrament of confession is for. Um, or one might be in desolation because one has become negligent or tepid or lazy in one's spiritual life or prayer practices or attendance at Mass or whatever. And that's also something that one can bring to confession because confession is not only a way of removing the sin, erasing the sin and restoring our state of intimacy with God, but it's also a way of asking for God's special grace to strengthen us against that failure or against that sin. So I'm not saying that in a state of desolation one should ignore the possibility that we brought it on ourselves, but if we did bring it on ourselves, it's not without remedy. It's very easily remedied, which is what the sacrament of confession is for. Um, by the way, another reason why it's a good idea to take it to confession is because the priest may be inspired by God to give us some very valuable spiritual counsel and um, illuminate to us 
what's going on in the spiritual warfare going on in our minds, so to speak. So um, why else might God leave us in a state of spiritual desolation? He might do so in the words of St. Ignatius to try us and to see how much we are and how much we let ourselves out in his service and praise without the great pay of consolation and great graces. In other words, how much of our devotion to God comes from our determination and our desire to please him versus how much of it comes from the reward we get from consolation from our relationship with God. Um, Another is to let us know, and this is very important, that all of our love of God, all of our desire to be good and so forth, is um, we can't take credit for. That is a gift from God. And if we are always in a spirit of consolation, we might feel kind of smug and arrogant and feel like we own our piety or whatever we own our religiosity that is a virtue of our own and we might god forbid even feel uncompassionate towards others who do not know god and do not have a love of god and so forth by putting us in a state of desolation god makes us very aware that we are dependent on him even for our love of him and even for our desire to be good and our desire to be faithful to him. And that is um, very, very important, especially if one does tend towards uh, trying to please God, or if one does tend towards piety, there is the Achilles heel of what is called spiritual vainglory, where we become vain for our spirituality, or vain over our piety, or whatever, And uh, one good way to knock us down a notch is for God to leave us in a state of spiritual desolation, which makes us painfully aware that we don't own, we don't own any of our virtue at all. And any virtue we have is uh, unmerited gift of the grace of God that's coming from God. So when he takes it away, it becomes evident to us that we never had it in the first place, that it was just something that he gave us. Um, finally, uh, very, very important is if you are in desolation, remember it won't last forever. Consolation will come again. And if you're in consolation, excuse me, the same thing. If you're in consolation, use that state of consolation to remind yourself that desolation will come again and to try to fortify yourself against the desolation, which will inevitably return. I mean, not return permanently, but this life between birth and death, if we are, if we have any relationship with God at all, if we have, uh, have any attempt in our lives to please God and to, and to end up in heaven, then during this life we will be oscillating, so to speak, between consolation and desolation. And that's what it's all about. We may even be oscillating between growth and virtue and falling into sin. But do not associate, and this will be my final word today, don't associate sinning, don't associate falling into sin with an unending state of desolation. In other words, the most important thing to remember about falling into sin is that 
if we go to confession, if we have remorse for our sin, if we truly regret our sin and want to do better and confess it and receive absolution, then that sin is not only forgiven, it is forgotten. And I'll close with a true incident that has to do with a saint. St. Claude de la Colombière was a saint in his own right, and he was also the spiritual director of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, who received the Sacred Heart Apparitions. And when she, when St. Margaret Mary Alacoque went to her spiritual director, Claude de Colombière, and told him that Jesus was appearing to her, of course he didn't believe her. Um, it could be a delusion. So as a test, Claude Colombier said to her, the next time Jesus appears to you, ask him what my last mortal sin was. And this was going to be a way of knowing whether it was Jesus really appearing to um, Mary, Margaret Mary Alacoque. So the next time Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary, she said, excuse me, but my spiritual director asked me to ask you what his last mortal sin was that he confessed. Jesus' answer was, tell him he confessed it, I don't remember it. And then when she did tell Claude de Colombier that Jesus had said that, he believed that it was really Jesus appearing to her. So remember, 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 remember that um, there is never any reason to give up hope or to despair, whatever the situation, because we are in this incredibly privileged position of always being able to to not only reestablish our relationship with God, but in some sense reestablish it in a strengthened way through the sacrament of confession. So with that final exhortation, I will leave you for today. Um, if you're wondering what does this have to do with uh, Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, I'll think about that a little bit. But of course, everything that I've been telling you, all of, all of what we have, we only have um, in our relationship with God because of Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. Um, the relationship with God was not, this relationship with God, which we have at our fingertips through the sacraments, through the reception of the Eucharist, through the relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary, through the sacrament of confession, we only have because the Jewish Messiah did come and we have him as the foundation stone of our relationship with God now um, as Jesus Christ in the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So I guess that's the connection. Uh, next week's show might be more explicitly about Judaism, but it's time to say goodbye for now. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Shoman. I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. <laughs>